I want to know, they might have a great factory, but I need to know them. I need to know how are they shipping? Who are they shipping to? How are they delivering? What's their paperwork look like apart from that? What does their product look like? We're not here just to sell a bridge in Brooklyn. We're here to build a viable, sustainable business. I'm Michael Gloucester, and this is Fashion Cast. We're talking to fashion leaders and disruptors as we seek inspirational stories and expert insight into the world's most dynamic industry. Heard in over 70 countries, we're building an international fashion community based on fashion topics that matter. Please visit our website, fashioncast.co, to join our email list and learn more. Now, enjoy the show. On this episode of Fashion Cast, we introduce you to Jamie Koff, president and founder of Fabric to Finish Inc., a New York City-based fashion incubator. Jamie attended the George Washington University, where she graduated with a BA in English and Fine Art. Before founding Fabric to Finish in 2006, Jamie worked for multiple top fashion brands, including J. Crew, Tommy Hilfiger, DKNY Jeans, Sean John, Polo Jeans Company, and Children's Worldwide Fashion. Jamie is joining FashionCast via Zoom from New York City. Welcome to FashionCast, Jamie. We're so excited to have you on our show. Thank you for having me. Can you please share with our audience a summary of how you entered the world of fashion? Well, my entry point was not as traditional as I would say others, because I was forbidden to go into the fashion industry (laughs) when I was growing up. The daughter of a doctor and a nurse didn't know much about it, apart from the fact that my maternal grandparents were immigrant garment workers and schmata trade. Uh, They set up a shop from a cart and it was labor and it wasn't an academic or intellectual field to be in. So it was a little bit of an unpredictable unknown for mom and dad. And so I was kind of not forced, but I was encouraged to go get a traditional liberal arts degree, which I did. But my passion was always going into the fashion industry, just simply as a typical dreaming young girl who saw the pages of 17 magazine and all of the up and coming supermodels that were really more of a, I guess, sport for me. You know, my brothers traded baseball cards and I was flipping pages and tearing out pictures of Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, Helena Christensen, Nikki Taylor. And that was my wannabe. And I guess when I went through my university career, I was an English major and an art minor and was always creative and always was an entrepreneur. I found my way up to New York by way of just simple old-fashioned networking pre-internet and landed at J. Crew as a production coordinator because I knew that I had no knowledge base of the industry. I had no education. And what I did through my networking research was to find out which part of the industry might be well-suited for me as an assistant entry-level person. And so I realized, well, I can't be a designer because I don't have that. 
I don't have that educational background. And I don't know merchandising. I don't know anything from that, even though I did apply for a lot of the buying programs at Macy's and Bloomies, which back in the day were these huge, huge programs, very coordinated, very hard to get into, almost like an Ivy League, you know, admission. And and I heard production was really the place where you could land in a capacity of, you know, learning and exploring. And that's what I did. And so my entree into the world of fashion was literally finding a women's wear daily on the stand at DuPont Circle in, in DC and cold calling and cold faxing as we did back in the day, faxing cover letters and resumes and hunting and gathering and closing with J. Crew back in 93. And I went up for an interview and they had a position available as a production coordinator. They offered me the job. I packed up my college apartment and found an apartment <laughs> in New York and I moved up two weeks later. And that was 30 years ago this week. Wow. Wow. Congrats. You were like a... Yeah. Five years old? Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like you became a networking diva, man. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And that's kind of bootstrapping it and bootstrapping Big time, it. yeah. I agree with you because a lot of what I see now in a lot of the, the students that come to intern for me or the classes that come up for me to lecture to, we, we talk about the simplicity of having to do it on your own and then the lack of the support of a monster.com or careerbuilders.com or LinkedIn. We didn't have a LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I had to go to the GW Gelman library (laughs) (laughs) and look up in the volumes of books, who are the CEOs and presidents of all the major apparel companies that I know of. And back then I didn't really know of many. I knew of, of course, Ralph Lauren. I knew of Liz Claiborne, um, uh, Jansen, you know, the swimwear company, all these brands. Like I wasn't raised on fashion. So of course I knew luxury, but they were all based in Europe. And so I literally, by way of my passion, I was able to find my way into someone's fax machine. And it was just this chase and hunting and gathering that I inherently had. And I didn't know it until after I got here. So prior to Fabric to Finish and your experience with these multiple brands, I mean, you went on from J. Crew to a multiple brands, different companies. How did all of those experiences essentially translate into this fashion incubator? Well, a lot of it, I would say all of it, but I think in particular, my experience at Tommy was the most formative for me and the most pivotal in my career. I was an assistant in the fabric department there. And truth be told, I was laid off from J. Crew after a year of being there. At the time, it was unfortunately not a real happy place to work. And I found my way into Tommy and I created a job for myself there because they weren't hiring and I was really eager to get in the door. So yet again, part two of my passionate, ambitious hunting and gathering energy landed me an assistant job. And I had no background in fabric and fabric science or fabric technology. But what I did was I signed up for classes, night classes at FIT and and Tommy reimbursed me for them, which I was grateful for. I started to learn the fundamentals and I found that I was part of this incredible 
team of people, this incredible machine. And after one year of being there, I was hand-selected to be part of this dream team to start his women's line and his jeans line for men's and women's. Wow, that's amazing. And this was a big deal at the time. It was a license with Pepe Jeans, which was another partner company They all the investors were involved in. And the Pepe company signed a license to launch women's and jeans. And because Tommy was a public company, they weren't able to pull from the mothership so much to affect the infrastructure. And they chose me as an assistant to be the fabric person for this new venture. <laughs> Talk they about see. muscling yourself into the front door. Exactly. Wow. But they can see it in her, the passion in the drive and how hardworking she is. Well, and- the other thing is, tell me, is this true or not? But it seems to me that Tommy Hilfiger is pretty much a nurturing kind of guy. Correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't seem like he's a rotten person to yeah, work with, you know? What it sounds like. It was absolute, like diametrically opposed environments from coming off of J. Crew to this. And listen, you know, as a business owner, I see now the implications of that a family business versus a publicly traded business. There's variances. There's variances in policy and procedure and standard operating procedure and human resources and all of that stuff. And so, yes, he's a very is and was a very nurturing, compassionate man. He also was able to bring great people around him. And that was the part of this formation of my understanding of my entrepreneurial spirits and what it was like to be part of this startup. So sitting in a boardroom at a, an adoption meeting, uh, you know, in the second row behind all of the leaders, the president, the CEO, the, the main investors from Hong Kong, my vice president at the time who, who became my mentor, Just being in the room where it happened, which is a phrase we can borrow from (laughs) Hamilton now, but I was in the room where it happened before the theater learned about that phrase. And it was an incredible experience to have my voice heard when it was called upon and to be relevant and to also be very young in my career, whereby I was learning from these great leaders and also being thrown into a startup that was being funded by, at the time, a $350 plus million company. So it was a very unique experience to be a team of, you know, five to six people getting on an airplane and, you know, flying out, let's say the Saturday night of Thanksgiving weekend, because Tommy scrapped the collection and we had to go fix it and get there by Monday after Thanksgiving because of spring delivery and spring market. So abruptly getting up and leaving and coming back three days later, sourcing and building in three days, going to Hong Kong for a long weekend, essentially, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, getting into the the core of all the vendors and the suppliers and the team building and all of this process and procedure that was put in place with these incredible leaders, that was what guided me. And that was what trained me in what I took to the other companies that I ultimately became employed by and which I ultimately created here. You know, this is, to answer your question, this is a microcosm of that world. Our brands that come to seek opportunity here are not funded by 
the same people that funded Tommy when he launched and or when he went public. It's a very different animal. It's a very different side of the coin. But fundamentally, it's still the same energy, the same hustle, the same do it right as much as you can the first time so that you can have the least amount of things that are affecting the time and action calendar or the fit schedule or the supply chain for that matter. So I've created as, you know, and I ran into Tommy several years after I started and it was really nice to see him. And it was exciting because it was like, wow, I, you know, I'm working for myself now. And so he's like, what are you doing? (laughs) You want to come back and work for me? And I said, I'm, I started a company. And so I, this is what I'm doing. And I started this because I was really influenced by my experience starting up women's and jeans with you. It was really that. That says a lot about him. Yeah, yeah for he's, sure. He's a true leader and was able to work well with people. Well, that's the key, isn't it? That's the key. H- he, hire he inspired well. her to go, yeah, and do it. Hire well. Hire yes, well. Exactly. And what do they say? Yeah. Hire slow. And fire fast. <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> you know, take your time, get the right people in the right seats in the right room. So it sounds like that's really kind of this inside baseball about Hilferger. That's very yeah, interesting that because story. that's a real gift to be able to do that and attract the right people and not be wasting your time with the bureaucracy and infighting and all of the garbage. Yeah, I mean, he has constantly surrounded himself with greatness. And, you know, that's... That's a great model. I admire him for that. And, you know, when you're a small business, it takes time to find those same recipes and to to build whatever equitable model you can build at that different price point. Obviously, it's a totally different organization and a different setup, but still building off of the knowledge base and how we function in those corporate situations is what I 100% borrow from in our day-to-day. And as we reinvigorate how we work and how we cycle with our brands, it all goes back to the fundamentals of how to get it done and how to get it done efficiently, cost-effectively, and, and with the best product at the outcome. You can't learn what you learned in fashion school. Exactly. No. She hands on no. yeah, the best experience. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. incredible. Do yeah. So uh, amazingly, your first client was Diane von Furstenberg. Right. So what challenges did she have that Fabric to Finish was able to manage? So as the story goes, I was working for a company that was a very known global brand and it was a license and the French parent company that owned it closed the New York office in July of 2006. And I was heading out to go to the fall fabric shows to keep my toe in the water and to network and shake hands to see what was going on out there. And that's when I signed up for launching Fabric to Finish. It was a very quick, fast-moving let's make it happen kind of decision. And when I was there, I invited every person I knew to a cocktail party because I wound up renting an apartment last minute because all of the hotels were booked. There was some like umpteen trade shows in Paris at the time. And I rented an apartment and I said, you know what? 
And this is before Airbnb. I literally found an apartment on the internet (laughs) and I said, oh, this is cute. Let me host a party and really make this an announcement. So I sent out invites to a lot of my industry colleagues, a lot of people in other companies that I knew of. And I was still shy about the fact that I was starting this up because everyone knew me as the fabric girl. And I was more than just that. And so fast forward, I had known a lot of the DVF design and production team just by way of industry network. And I invited them all to this party. And they attended. I knew the creative director again by way of mutual colleagues. And when I got back from the trip, the head of production contacted me and said, you know what? Nathan's actually doing his own line and Diane is financing it, the creative director of of DVF. How do you feel about coming in and talking about the opportunity? He needs you. He needs somebody to make things happen. And so at the time it was similar to like that Mark Jacobs relationship with LVMH, right? They were funding him and he was right. So it was no different. And I wound up going in, I interviewed with the president, the CFO. I interviewed with Diane and it was a unique experience for me. I had such imposter syndrome. I still do. No. (laughs) And so I wound up getting notice that they were ready to rock and roll. And while my business model idea was about having a multi-layered, multi-branded agency, they were the first that I closed. And it turned out to be a lot more than I had signed up for just simply because of the needs of this particular brand and individual, because how he was straddling this multi-million dollar namesake and also doing his own ready to wear brand that we were showing at London Fashion Week so as to not compete with his boss. And they hijacked me a lot. I couldn't really get out there and, and earn other clients, but I call that my MBA because I ran a studio. I got a a runway show put on in London. I had meetings with Harrods and Harvey Nichols and Matches and Joyce in Hong Kong and built a showroom in the Creon Hotel. And just, again, this whole starting a business from nothing and making sure every dot and T was crossed and box was checked. And that for me was the realization that, okay, I can do this. Right. And so I, I, I never doubted myself, but I doubted myself, if you know what I mean. And, um, so the, the challenges were the disarray and the disorganization of, of a, an, a brilliantly talented creative genius. And so my role was to maintain the environment, create the staff, manage the staff, get the collection done, manage the global sourcing, be accountable for the finances, almost like a COO, but a consulting COO, and and to really get jump through hoops to get it done. And I realized at that point, while working in the other designer companies that I had, it was a different experience. This individual 
Nathan was by far the most incredibly talented, brilliant individual I've ever worked with. From a design standpoint, he was schooled at Central St. Martin's in London and was a contemporary of Alexander McQueen and they were buddies. And so you can imagine this personality, this this typhoon of creativity (laughs) just kind of swooshing through the day. And, you know, we'd start meetings at 10 o'clock at night. It was outrageous how he operated and how I had to then rein everybody in and say, all right, business, business, business. Where's this? Where's that? Has this been approved? Where's the sample? What pattern maker are we using? Why is this pattern costing $8,000? Like it was a lot of operational juggling. And so that was my first experience dealing with and a situation where it wasn't corporatized. It wasn't stemming from a bunch of executives sitting around a table right, like right. I had grown up with. I was the one who was bringing everybody down to the table to say, sit down. Where's where's my stuff? Where's this delivery? I don't care if you were out late last night <laughs> drinking. Like, get this shit done. You had and, to you make know, it happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially being your first client. Yeah. Welcome to the creative mind. So many creatives think that way and they're not able to juggle all of these other projects like you've been able to do. But in terms of creativity, it's off the charts. Nobody can keep up. So all of that's been consolidated. You've got all this experience. You've had your incredible first client. So today, who is your ideal client? It's a tough question because, you know, over the years, we've had some really great brands. And what we found is that our job isn't just building a brand up and launching it. We're a psychologist's office. We are, <laughs> we, yeah. we probably all should have, Go see you know, we probably Dr. Should, should, no, I mean, gosh, yeah, my dad, rest in peace. Oh. Um, no, no, not at all. It's a lot of personality. What's an ideal client? Wow. An ideal client, number one, someone who pays the bills on time. (laughs) That would be good. It's a good start. Someone who knows what they don't know. That took a lot of time for me to figure out in my journey of growing the business about who these individuals or partners were that would come on board with us and create this environment that wasn't healthy because they knew better, right? And so I find that we're looking for ideal clients that have a sensibility and humility about what they don't know. And that just like me walking into a hospital for surgery, I don't know from that. I'm not going to tell my doctor how to, you know what I mean? I'm not going to say, no, 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 I want to cut costs. Let me suture myself up at the end of, you know. And I, and, and, no, but it's it's funny, but it's it's true. It's a lot of people, as my parents did, dumbed down fashion and didn't think that it was it's very any more than... Absolutely. It's very, and very so, complex. There's so many layers of this onion. And it's so big. So many moving parts. The manufacturing, the global logistics, the technical side of things. It's not a, it's not Ikea. 
And I think a lot of people come in here thinking that this is a, a DIY and it's not. It is custom. There is a time involved. There are responsibilities to the supply chain. And so the ideal client is someone that's mild mannered, someone that really, really understands and appreciates the magnitude of, of what we do to give them and deliver their dream on a silver, gold, or platinum platter. Whatever color they want, we will lab dip it. <laughs> so in simple terms, an ideal client is someone that really wants to play nicely and sees the value of having a team of people that know what they're doing in the trenches and they're okay with those people doing what they're doing without, without question. So can anyone contract with fabric to finish or do you prefer some fashion experience? That's a great question. We've worked with all kinds, all shapes and sizes. It's interesting that where I at first thought having fashion experience would be a value add, in some cases it's not. And the entrepreneurs that, as I say, don't know shit from Shinola before they walk in the door, (laughs) they're actually in some cases, better because they're unaffected. They're easier to work with. Correct. So they're more malleable. Mm. And what they're seeking is the educational component and the real consulting understanding. And that's what they really hone in on. Whereas the people with fashion backgrounds, for example, we worked and launched an incredible brand with someone who was in marketing in fashion, but they didn't have the the team, the wherewithal and this general, you know, building opportunity to create their own brand. But they were the visionary behind what they wanted the brand to look like. They were ideal because they they had the vision. And so I go back to that question that I just kind of closed on. I think an ideal client is someone that actually, besides being the mild mannered, besides being, you know, cash positive and able to understand the investment that's going into this, that they also know what they want because it takes the guesswork out of having to create umpteen times because they can't make their mind up. So being decisive and having some type of vision statement, and then we take it from there. You know, again, Tommy and all of the brands I worked with, there wasn't, here's my design and all my stuff. It was I want to do rock prep. There's my concept. Make it happen. So going into the DNA of the brand, that meant we had to have a PK polo. We had to have an Ivy jacket. There needed to be some fun printing. So my point is the the interpretive dance always works because that's what our team is here for. We have to take your direction, the client's direction, and say, here's what, how we kind of interpret your phraseology, your Pinterest board, your branded logo, if you have one, or create your branded logo if you don't have one, or your typography. So it's it's a very holistic experience here. And I know there's so many questions that come out of this, but the fashion experience, frankly, doesn't help that much. But fabric mm. to finish, it all gets a little bit messy if okay, so now you have this concept and you have to go to work, but you guys are collaborating with a lot of different companies and different companies around the world too, right? So you have connections, so to speak, 
with yep. manufacturers and sourcing fabric. And, you know, so I can see how it's going to get really multi-layer very quickly. But can you speak to that? Have you vetted these different contacts that work or, and do you have some like exclusive agreements like you're only going to work with X, Y, or Z? Yes, we vet all of our vendors. And in this day and age of international compliance and workplace ethical human rights, we are absolutely signed up for those that are fulfilling the obligations of their local governments and the standards that are acceptable manufacturing standards and social standards. So as it relates to that, there's many global manufacturing portals that people can plug into if they want to do this on their own. And they can email somebody on Alibaba and have a shirt made. They don't know where that shirt is made. It might be that it might be cheap as dirt, but when push comes to shove, if you're looking to build a business, not a hobby, those things are going to be important to iron out. So we're only working with vendors that have been certified and compliant in all of the international requirements. As it relates to our relationships, a lot of my relationships stem from my years of being in the industry and they have blossomed and expanded because of my travel and the opportunity to build new product. So there's nothing exclusive per se, because our role as a company isn't to say, hey, use my factory, they're great, right? I'm not an agent who's representing vendors. Our role is to source the best product at the best price, at the best delivery, under the best approval circumstances, meaning certifications, compliance. Now, environmental certifications like Blue Sign and Green Sign and Okiotex and BSCIA and all that fun stuff where people want to add all of those great logos on their website when they're launching. So, I'm consistently meeting and vetting vendors while I'm on the road, you know, before and after the pandemic, obviously there was a little bit of a lull in there, but the relationships I've had some span back 30 years. And so when I set off to launch Fabric to Finish, I reached out to some of the key players to let them know that I'm not going to be showing up with purchase orders of 150, 250,000 yards anymore or 5,000 yards of this. It's, this is a different red carpet that they're going to roll out. And would they be up for this journey with me? Because I believe in this and I know we'll be swimming upstream against the current for a little bit, but I want to do great business with you. And a lot of them stayed on board and we're still holding hands all these years later. In fact, one of my main go-to fabric suppliers that I use in Asia is one of my first vendors from my Tommy years. And he's off on his own, running his own business. And so we get to grow with each other and I can still sleep at night knowing these people. And that's the thing. I think when you ask about relationships, one of the things that I speak very candidly about when people are interviewing us to consider working with us and it's and when they talk about the cost and they talk about what it means to hire a team of people and to, to have a full service operation you know i guess a lot of that goes into finance and discussions which we don't have to get into right now but one of the big things that i always highlight is i know where we are working 
And I can sleep at night. Therefore, you can sleep at night. And so I don't need to email somebody through a dense computer of not knowing someone because they contacted me on LinkedIn and said, hey, I have a great swimwear factory in the middle of the mountains of you know Vietnam or Cambodia. I want to know, they might have a great factory, but I need to know them. I need to know how are they shipping? Who are they shipping to? How are they delivering? What's their paperwork look like apart from that? What does their product look like? We're not here just to sell a bridge in Brooklyn. We're here to build a viable, sustainable business. Yeah, that's a selling point to me, though, if I'm your client, that you have these kind of deeper relationships with these different manufacturers and so forth. Yeah, I love that. I love that answer, too. We will be right back with Jamie Koff, Fabric to Finish, after this brief message from Omay Organics. Hi, I'm Christine. You may know me as co-host of Fashion Cast, but I'm also the founder and CEO of Omay Organics. I believe skincare should be simple. Our hyaluronic cream is all you need to nourish your skin morning and night. Sourced from the highest quality organic ingredients from around the world and manufactured in an FDA facility right here in the USA, this incredible cream works to firm, deeply moisturize, and smooth the appearance of your skin. Please visit omeorganics.com and use promo code FASHIONCAST to receive a 15% discount off your first purchase, and you will receive our monthly newsletter free. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're with Jamie Koff, Fabric to Finish. And Jamie, we were talking about, you know, the incubator status your company's a little bit different from that. You can talk about that if, if you want. But are you receiving more requests from clients to assist on sustainable projects these days? What are the trends if it's not sustainable? Well, it's actually, I can answer all of that because there's a couple of things that have been trending since the pandemic. Uh, I think we've all experienced, you know, this loungewear, a kind of athleisure kind of wardrobing, right? And so while we were all locked down, everybody was trying to get their hands on the comfy, cozy stuff. So that was one thing that started to come out of it. Also, what came out of it was golf lines, golf and activewear. There were women that took up golf. There were kids that took up golf. It was the safest thing to do during the pandemic where you could stay active because it was an outdoor sport. And so it was missing from the market outside of the obvious Nikes and Pumas and all of these other you know, brands, Lulu and all of these cross-pollinated cross brands where you could wear from sport to sport. But there was nothing just dedicated to golf, for example. So we had two golf lines we launched. One is currently in the works and home furnishing. So recyclable, sustainable. Yes, because that goes into everything that we do now. Everybody wants to make an impact on the environment, whether it's from the home furnishing line that we launched of recycled polyester faux fur, which feels absolutely so delicious. You would think it was real fur and it's got 100% certification of, re, of a, of a traceability, recycled traceability. We've got fibers that we're now 
choosing simply because of the message of sustainability. And most of the brands that are starting have to have a why. It's it's no longer just, I want to start a t-shirt line or I want to start a a jeans line or a shorts line. It's, I know that I have to be different than the new kid on the block next to me so that I can earn market share. What's different about my product than the the guy or the gal next door? And I get to bring value to it by saying I have certification, I have recycled paperwork and all of those things, you know, carcinogenic free trims and certain environmental warnings that have been going out as it relates to chemicals and fibers and applications and textiles. And so there's a lot to navigate on that subject. Many brands that are going sustainable are taking a piece of it or doing all of it. And we're not doing all of it because that is a whole other business model, like a Mara Hoffman or an Eileen Fisher, who are really, really dedicated to a 100% sustainable model. Our clients are very keen on the recycled packaging and trimmings that come with your packages because these are all direct-to-consumer brands first and foremost. So when you're ordering online, they dispose of all of the packing materials and just keep the consumables, right? I want to put my blouse on, but I'm throwing away the tissue paper, the hang tags, the marketing mailer that came with it, the, the mailer that it came in. And now we are being asked to source sustainable packaging, compostable packaging. We're dealing with a pet line right now that their waste bags of their leashes are biodegradable and compostable. So once, I mean, if you really think about going back to the earth, so, right. And then that changes the, the, the playing field because sustainable products have a different shelf life than non-sustainable products. So for example, if we want to have compostable, recycled type of packaging that's going to be shipped to your house, those are not stocked and kept like a paper supplier or a Mm -hmm. PVC plastic supplier. It's like made to order. They have a shelf life. They, they, Correct, because they biodegrade. Exactly. And so they they disintegrate after time. It has to be climate controlled and all of that stuff. So mm. there's a lot of new product out there and a lot of new opportunities. And to answer the all you know, the the all-encompassing question, yes, all of our brands are asking and seeking to eat up as much of this as possible so that they can help make an impact and also properly market their brand as one that people would want to support because they're making such an effort environmentally. So, Jamie, how long do clients typically use your services? Average one to three years or more. And so what we do is we spend the first year launching and it is building the DNA. It is building the child and it is launching the brand. And if we're starting and doing their logo and branding and and typography and even their naming of their company, it's a whole different story. But we say the first year is dedicated to the development, the production and the launch. And then year two and three plus our maintenance, because generally speaking, we've got our baseline, we've got all our trims, we've developed our button with the laser engraving, you know, that says brand 
ABC, whatever the brand is, the zipper pulls. We've done the testing on the heat seal logos on both inside and outside of the garments. We've done fitting to make the perfect pant. And now we can change and make it into the perfect fitting short or skirt or short sleeve to long sleeve or vice versa. So we oftentimes we're, we're open to continue working. I think it's individual's preference, how they choose to continue to embark on their business journey. I think on one hand, there's that group of individuals that think that once they've got a season under their belt, they're set for life. And soon after they realize they're not, and that's something that we always talk about, you know, and it, it's a tough conversation to have. You know, I certainly am great. I picked out all the appliances and stuff for my kitchen and my bathroom and my apartment when I renovate it, but I needed a whole team of people to put it together for me, sure. right? Yeah. So just because I know where to get the tiles and where to get the, the Bosch appliances doesn't mean that I can plug it in. I need an electrician, a plumber. I need a contractor. And I think a lot of people forget about that. And they think that once they've got all their stuff, they can get up and running. And so we, we like to say an average of one to three years, and then we'd like to be their home because we do it best. And, and we've built this trusted, safe place for them. And we've built the supply chain relationship. And so that's kind of where it lands. Are your parents still skeptics? I would say no, and they're no longer with me. However, they were both here when I set up shop and were able to watch me get started. And I know that they're, I laugh every day. I look at the light fixtures because I wound up picking out at Home Depot, these amazing chandeliers that were $99. And I got two of them and my mom helped me pick them out. And it's still sitting in, in the main area of the office before I expanded. Oh, that's cool. She was a part of your journey. Absolutely. That's so beautiful. Absolutely. Based on your in-depth industry experience, what advice would you give to would-be fashion entrepreneurs? Hold on to your seats. <laughs> How's that for an answer? That's a great answer. That's perfect. That's all you need to know. Right? there. That's it. We can close the books now. No. <laughs> In all seriousness, I actually had the realization many years ago, and I guess someone who was a service provider for me said to me, when I, out of frustration, was like, oh my gosh, isn't there a book on how to start a business? And isn't there an encyclopedia of some sorts? And he said to me, you think if there was a book, anybody would want to start their own business? <laughs> yeah. And so I share that as my, my mention of, of when these entrepreneurs and when these individuals come to the table, they have to have armor. They have to have their elbow pads on and their knee pads and their helmet. <laughs> and they have to not take things seriously or personally, and they have to surrender. When you find the right team of people, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, when you surround yourself with the right people, you create the opportunity. And unless you can surrender and let that go, 
you will not find that success. And people stagger and they stifle themselves because they get in their own way. And so we've learned through many years of experience by way of the brands that are no longer here to talk about it because they chose not to listen to best practices and professional advice. And so I would end with people need to be good listeners. And you can't do it all yourself. She's just a wealth of knowledge. I just, I want to go on talking the rest of the afternoon. I know. You should write your book. Yeah, write your book, start your podcast. We want to have you on again. It's been a pleasure and an honor, Jamie Koff. Thank you so much for appearing on FashionCast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to FashionCast. To hear more shows and join our email list, please visit our website, fashioncast.co. You can also join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Until next time, I'm Michael Gloucester for FashionCast, the voice of fashion.